We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, I shared with you when we started this book that part of the difficulty in reading it, it's not a sequentially logical book. Paul's writing out of the passion of his life. He's struggling with his own personal issues in 2 Corinthians 12. Talks about the fact that he nearly lost his life in Ephesus. He, uh, and, and one of the major struggles is this church he loves this church. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. He, he led them to Christ. He's discipled them. And now he's left. And the other thing that's just breaking his heart is some guys have come in behind him and they are just vicious. It's almost like the political realm we see today where there's just this constant personal attack on each other. We're not addressing the issues. We just attack the other person. That's what they've done. They've come in with all sorts of attacks on him. And so part of the section we're in, he's trying to defend some of that in the course of defending that, he lays out some tremendous theological truth. Now, we're going to split this section up. We're going to look at verses, uh, and I need to get to 2 Corinthians, that'd be more important than 1 Corinthians. We're going to look actually at verse 12 all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, but we're going to come back to a section of it that we're not going to look at today that's embedded in there. Because I want us to understand fully exactly what he's saying. It is a unique section. It's a little difficult. Seems contradictory. But he is dealing with people that are attacking him. And so I shared with you, we're kind of listening on one end of the phone conversation to hear what he's saying to them. And we piece together what they've been saying based on our end of the phone conversation. That's where we are in the text. Powerful text because what he says about the Jew is pretty much true about us except we're not in mass rejecting the Lord. Now, listen to what he says because what they're saying about him, and we're going to see as we walk through this, what they're saying about him. I mean, he said a lot of different things. Remember, they said he, he wasn't timely. He didn't follow the will of God. He wasn't honest to what he said. And so now their attack is, look, why do you listen to this guy? He's a Jew. His own people. Don't listen to him. I mean, when he preaches, and Paul's strategy was he would simply go into a city, step into a synagogue, win a few, pull them out, start a church, and you'd have a little small Jewish population, and then the Gentiles would just flood the church. And so their argument was, look, the Jews don't even like him. They don't even listen to him. Why are you listening to him when his own people don't listen to him? And so he responds to that. It's that response that we're going to look at today. Listen carefully. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, he would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, we're going to look at that phrase next week when we drop with uh, verse 16 on down. So we're going to look at that next week, but he simply jumps from that. It's like he starts making a comment, and then he gets caught up, and he moves to something else, and then he comes back to it. Look at what he says. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Here's what he says. He says, I'll tell you why they don't respond. It's not me. It's them. There is a veil that has come over them, and they can't respond. Now, it's a new thought. Because... He's going to contradict this in a moment, seemingly. 
Now here's what he says. There is a veil that basically Israel as a whole has already said no to Jesus. Now when did that veil occur? I think we see it at the beginning when Jesus came, when John the Baptist, remember he's at the Jordan, he's preaching, all these people are coming out to hear him, <clears throat> and they're getting baptized, thousands. I started to say something, but I, I, but I won't. I started to say he's going to make Israel great again, but I, but I won't go there. So there's all these, you'll catch that in a minute. So all these thousands of people are coming out, and then the leadership comes out. And he won't baptize them. He says, you, who warned you <coughs> to flee from the wrath to come? He knows that the leadership <coughs> is not going to accept Jesus. Sure enough, when Jesus comes, that's exactly what happens for three and a half years. For three years in his life, you have uh, in all the Jewish leadership is just for three years all over him. But the people are like, boy, they love him. Matter of fact, five days before he dies, when he comes into Jerusalem on a Sunday morning, the leadership is standing back there, and they are growling and grumbling. And the people are going nuts. They're throwing coats down there and palm branches because they think he's great. So there's a veil pretty much on the Jewish leadership because they made up their mind. They don't want a Messiah that will ask them to walk two miles with a Roman soldier instead of one. They want a Messiah who will kill the Roman soldier. So they don't want him. And they're crushed at the people on him. And then in what is one of the most bizarre to process verses in the entire word of God. Friday. Jesus before Pilate. Pilate's terrified, doesn't want to jack with him. And he says, look, I'll give you an option. I've got Barabbas. He is horrible. I'll, I'll, I'll crucify him or Jesus. Which one do you want? And the same people who five days before are throwing palm branches down there. Here's what the Bible says. It says the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and kill Jesus. Now that took about five minutes. How in the world does the Jewish leadership in five minutes take the same people that threw palm branches down and turn them on Jesus? How do they do that? Very simply. And we don't know this from Texas, it's my own surmisal, but I think it makes absolute sense. I think what they did, they stepped into the crowd and said, look, if he's the Messiah, that you think he is, he can't die. Let's just see if he's who he says he is. Let's make him prove it. And now they're mad. Because if he does die, they think he's lied to them because they want the same kind of Savior. They're not interested in their sins being forgiven. They're not interested in being restored to the Father. They want the Romans killed just like leadership. They thought he was coming when he dies on the cross. They're done. So now the veil is complete. I think at the beginning of the ministry, the veil is over the leadership, and now it's over the entire nation because they've said to him, we don't want you. And there's a veil now. So here's what he says. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. In other words, when they read the Bible, they don't get it. Now listen, coming to Jesus and to the Father is not an intellectual understanding. It is a spiritual connection with the Trinity bringing the truth of God into your life. Now listen, then he, <coughs> then 
then he says something that doesn't make any sense. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts. I don't understand him. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, wait a minute. <clears throat> thought you said there's a veil here. If there's a veil over my mind spiritually, then when I hear about Jesus, I can't turn to him. That's not possible. But he comes right back and says, listen, there's a veil over the entire nation of Israel. But if somebody should come to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he explains what he's talking about. Now, this is difficult. We'll look at this a little bit next week. But here's what he says. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. <clears throat> now, I know this is difficult. I don't have time to go into this. We worship a Trinitarian God. One God, three persons. All distinct, all co-equal. All co-eternal. They have different functions in our salvation. Not a modalistic way, but simply, for example, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the Bible says God the Father chose to redeem us. God the Son made the redemption possible. And then it says, and this is the key point, that God the Spirit applies that redemption. He makes what Jesus did 2,000 years ago real in my life today. We see the Trinity really in our prayer life. It's not always automatic, but we generally pray to God the Father through the access His Son gives us to Him by the blood and the Holy Spirit guides and directs our prayer life. So that we, we don't pray what we want, we pray what He wants. There is a Trinitarian rule. That's why Jesus, at the baptism, said when we baptize people, when I baptize somebody, we'll baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus commanded. Why? Because all three persons of the Trinity are involved in everything in your life. And now he says, what is the role of the Spirit? John 16, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will convict. That Greek word convict literally means you win the argument. In other words, he will come to you and say, listen, Jesus is who he says he is. You are who the Bible says you are, and you will face judgment if you do not take Christ in. He will convince you of that at some point. Now, here's what he says. The Lord that you have to turn to is the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all co-equal. So the Holy Spirit now comes to you, to the Jew, and convinces him and shows him he removes the veil for a brief moment so that he sees Jesus. Now, listen. So you got the Jews in mass, leadership saying, we don't want you. Five minutes they convinced basically the entire nation of Israel, we don't want you. So what you assume is, God's done. He says that the Lord is a spirit, and if you respond to the spirit, you can come to the Lord. Here's the amazing thing. God never ceased speaking to his people. He never quits. He's never done. He's never finished. However, that doesn't mean you're saved. Interesting thing about God. He believes he's God. He believes you're not and therefore, he believes when he speaks the first time, you ought to respond. Now, so I have a veil over my heart. And we're just like the Jew in that sense, except not holistically like they were. I have a veil over my heart. Holy Spirit comes to me, 
and lifts the veil. Now, that's how it works. Let me show you something. Go with me to Matthew, real quickly, chapter 16. Now listen to what Jesus said. Now this is a supposedly Baptist section, but I, we, we only do part of it. Jesus gets them at Caesarea Philippi, says, who does everybody say I am? They say, man, they're saying you're John the Baptist, Elijah, all this stuff. Who do you say I am? And then Simon Peter, always Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now here's what he says. We as Baptists take that, oh yeah, I know what that means. He's building his church on our faith in him. Okay, that's half of it. The other half is, he told Peter, you didn't understand who I am on your own. You didn't understand who I am because of all my teaching. You understood who I am because my heavenly Father, through the Spirit, revealed it to you. No person is ever saved until the Holy Spirit of God speaks to you. You can't come on your own. You can't get up one day and, you know... I'm 65, I've done my deal, maybe I ought to come to Jesus. No, sir. You come to Jesus when he speaks, you don't come any other time, period. Jesus said, unless my father draws him, he cannot come. You cannot come without the veil being lifted. That's what he did to Peter. Peter's like every other Jew. But the Holy Spirit came along, lifted the veil. Peter looked at Jesus and said, I'm in. Now. What if you're not in? What if you look at that and say, no, I don't think so. Look over at Matthew 13. First parable, seven parables in Matthew 13. Here's the first one. Listen to verse 18. Obviously, uh, the disciples are Southern Baptists. They didn't understand the parable. So here's what he says. You know why we also have Southern Baptists in the Bible? Because constantly Paul says, you all. So we clearly have Southern Baptists. Okay. <clears throat> My dissertation's on humor. I'll have to do a little more work. Listen carefully. <clears throat> Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, that is, he doesn't understand the seriousness of it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now listen. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and he lifts the veil, you now have two options. You can do what Peter said. You're the Christ, son of the living God. I'm good with that. And you can yield to that and surrender to the blood of Christ and find forgiveness in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or, <clears throat> you can say, no, <clears throat> I see who you are, but I, I don't think so. Now, here's the problem you face. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you and he lifts that veil, and you see him, 
and you back away. The enemy comes and he reinstitutes the veil. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus is Lord. We are servants. For God has said, let light shine out of darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says the God of this world is blind to them. Now, here's what happens. You start out blinded. Holy Spirit lifts the veil. Now you have a shot. I can respond and do what Peter said. And you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you can find forgiveness and hope and restoration and eternal destiny. Or... When that veil is listed, lifted, you can do what Judas did. Now, we've talked about this before. It's not, Lord's Supper was not this lengthy table and everybody's sitting around a little halo. It was a U-shaped Lord's Supper. I don't have time to go into this, but when you examine the Gospels, it's pretty clear. You laid on your left side, you ate with your right hand. You, the person of honor was on your left, so that your head was basically into their chest and you ate. Which is why Judas was on the left side of Christ in the place of honor. The second thing that was a thing of honor was you would take bread or meat, dip it in the sauce, and offer it to someone as an act of honor. So Jesus does two things to him. He puts him on the side of honor. He does an act of honor. And then he makes a statement to him. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. What he was saying to Judas is, look, you don't have to do this. I have something for you. You don't have to do this. Judas hacked at Jesus over the Tuesday night before abusing him. In his eyes, he gets up, walks out, makes the deal with the chief priest, Betrays Jesus, everything's great. He's feeling good. He just wanted to get him back. So, let's say 10 o'clock at night, he's under conviction. Jesus giving one last lift the veil. Next morning, 6 a.m., when they usher Jesus out to take him to Pilate. Two disciples there, right? Peter, Judas. Judas, the Bible says when he saw that he was condemned, he had never meant it to go that far. He runs back into the temple. I mean, big tears. He runs back into the temple and says, I betrayed innocent blood. Of course, you got to love the Pharisees. They're going, bummer. Not our problem. And then he does the weirdest thing. He goes out gets a rope, and jumps off and hangs himself.
Why in the world would a man who spent three years with a man, a Savior, who forgave every person who asked for forgiveness? He forgave prostitutes. He healed demoniacs. He forgave tax collectors. He forgave the woman that they pulled basically out of the bed in the middle of the affair in the sheets. He forgave them. Why doesn't Judas run to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am so sorry. Why doesn't he do that? Because the veil was lifted. But according to Matthew 13, when you say no, the enemy comes in, takes what God has done, pulls it out. And according to 2 Corinthians 4, puts the veil back on, gives you, according to 2 Corinthians 4, blindness, and now you can't see. Here's a man who for three years watched Jesus Christ forgive every single person that came to him, and now he can't see to ask him to forgive him because the enemy has put the veil back down, and even within a matter of a span of hours, he cannot see that Jesus would ever Forgive him for what he did. That's what we face. So understand. You have a veil. Holy Spirit lifts it. Gives you an opportunity to see. And at that moment, you either step up or you step back. But whatever you do, if you step up, the veil simply, the clarity of Christ becomes deeper and deeper all your life. You say no, it's closed. You say, well, I didn't get another chance. Don't know. Scripture says today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. So obviously, when the enemy does his work, over time, your heart gets harder. I really don't think God quits speaking to anybody if he didn't quit speaking to the Jews who have in mass rejected him he's not going to quit speaking to the world he's still speaking but you can't he shut it so many times you can't really it's too hard God is not a preacher he doesn't yell he speaks softly and quietly spirit opens the veil gives you a chance, you have to decide. Which is why Paul says we've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways, chapter 4. We don't practice cunning. We don't tamper what God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves. In other words, he says we don't do gimmicks because there's nothing we can really do to con you into Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. I said, well, you don't wrong, we don't run long invitations here. I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist. I remember the two-week revivals. I remember about the third night, the evangelist in the funny suit would be preaching, and he'd start in, and, and, he, and after about the eighth verse, he would say, I know someone's going to come tonight. God's spoken to my heart. And in the youth, we're back there going, okay, somebody's got to go. We're going to be here all night, Jack. We don't do that here. Because I think 
the Holy Spirit has to speak to you. You can read all the apologetic books you want. You can talk to the smartest Christians in the world. You can go to all the conferences you want to. But you cannot be saved until the Holy Spirit lifts the veil over your heart. And the problem is you don't get all that many chances. You say, well, how many chances do you get? I, I really have no idea. I just know that, that in my own heart, there's... Grew up, Southern Baptist life, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whole thing, all the time, all my life. I don't hear his voice till I'm 17 years old. Now, I don't know if I rejected enough before that. I don't have any idea, but I don't really get saved till I'm 17. And I wonder if I'd refused that, where I'd be today. It's amazing to me how logically we can't process these things. For example, I still have a lot of people that come to me and say, you know, Jesus is really cool. He was a great man. See, you don't have that option. He said, I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham existed, I was alive. So you only have two options here. He's either God or he's nuts. And yet there are people all over this country, there may be some of you in here that are going, you know, I, I'm here because my wife made me come. And, but I, you know, I think Jesus is a good guy, but he's not the Savior because you can't see him. And I can't do anything to make you see. I do what Paul said. I'm going to lay this out. You're a sinner. And you're going to miss eternity with Christ without experiencing his blood payment in your life. Now, you're not a Christian? if it doesn't bother you okay you're not under conviction now it's going to sound crazy but I'm telling you you come down here and pray it's not going to make any difference the only way for the veil to be lifted is by the personal work of the Holy Spirit of God you can't see Jesus without him if so you know you're not a believer, and it's wearing on you, then you're under conviction. You have an opportunity. But the door closes. I remember one time in college, my roommate was, uh, you know, you kind of get given, I went to Baptist school, obviously, and I, I had this roommate that, I mean, was anything but a believer. His uncle comes one night to the room, and uh, my roommate leaves, so Uncle and I are shooting the breeze, they're going to supper, and we're talking, and <laughs> I, I start, somehow the conversation shifted really easily, and I begin talking about Jesus, and he got this incredibly worried look on his face, and he began to say to me, are you, uh, really, is that, 
would happen. This is what you're saying. <clears throat> so we walked through this whole deal. <clears throat> he left that night. I saw him two weeks later. He comes in. Pick up his roommate, his, his uh, nephew again. Pretty jovial. And he looks at me and he says, Hey. I said, yeah. I got to tell you, man. You almost had me the other night. But I'm good now. He's God. You don't get to come on your terms. You come on his. And that means his son's blood, his choice, and the call of his Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for sending your son to die. Thank you for the work of your spirit in, un in removing our veil. Father, I fear there are people in here that the veil's been removed and they don't, didn't respond and now they don't even know it's back down. Father, speak to us today. If there are those here that the veil can be removed this morning, remove it through your spirit. And let them make the choice that your son is the Christ, the redeemer, the ransom, the only chance we have of reconnection with you. Show us that as literally only you can. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. give a real simple invitation here you want Jesus Christ today be a great day to find him if that opportunity is afforded to you by Holy Spirit God's calling you to be a part of this church as he speaks to your heart this morning you come